This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Fischer with the Convergent Science Network, and today I'm speaking with uh, Etienne Koechlin, who was also a speaker in our uh, summer school. And Etienne, you focus very much on the human prefrontal cortex, uh, not only in your talk, also in your work in general. So, so what is so special about this this part of the brain? Uh. It's, it's a huge question. Uh, first, uh, why I'm interested in the prefrontal cortex and, and more generally in the frontal lobe function is that I think part of uh, what uh, makes me really humans compared to not uh, to other primates is uh, lies especially in the prefrontal cortex. So it's for me, it's a curiosity. It's <laughs> okay. a question uh-huh. of curiosity. And uh, it's also a huge region, and uh, it's a region that is really involved in, I think, in how we feel we are uh, the actor of our own uh, actions and behavior. Mm-hmm. And it's related to consciousness, so to many different things that uh, I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Right. But now, um, you are sort of summarized... Uh, your, your view uh, on prefrontal cortex also in, in a very formalistic way. You had actually one very simple equation that, that you thought captured most of its function around uh, sensory states and actions and so on. So, so, uh, so how can you then characterize the function of this complex structure in a simple equation? Well, what, what is that equation exactly? Uh, your question is wh- uh, how it is possible to simplify things with very... Uh, Both, actually. What's the equation and how did you get there? <laughs> so first, I like simple models mm-hmm. and because I think a model should be... Uh, the, 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 most, uh, the most simple is a model, the most explanatory, I think it is, in, in one sense. So I really try to first uh, find simple uh, models and because I, I think also simple models are uh, more intelligible, and also I develop simple models because I try to develop models that can be testable in experiment. Mm-hmm. I mean, and even simple models are not so uh, easy to test and to confirm or infirm in experiment. And uh, that's why I do uh, simple models. I develop simple models because I know that this model, like, they have some quite straightforward predictions. They, may, they might be a bit simplistic in mm-hmm. one sense, but still with this model, you can test them and you can tease apart some uh, quite deep conceptual differences between different uh, hypotheses. Or mm-hmm. uh, right. So now prefrontal cortex is essentially in some way bringing together perceptual states, states of the world, um, actions, and a sense of value or utility of, of their combination. Or, or, or Do you see those as the key ingredients upon which these areas operate, or is there another element to that? Uh, I think as a, one of the, uh, the most important key elements of the prefrontal function is action. Action has very specific constraints. I mean, uh, first, action requires uh, choosing. 
Uh, you cannot uh, say that uh, I think I will do this uh, 80% of time and this 20% of time. When you really act in the world, you do one action or another one. So it's, it's required making decision, making choice. And this is a huge constraint between, because making choice engage you and is in one sense suboptimal to make mm-hmm. choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to be better opti- wait forever <laughs> <laughs> no I mean to be optimal is always to have some uh, multiple interpretation of the mm-hmm. world and to to continue to uh, to with this kind of uh, multiple representation and when you do an action basically you you stick with an interpretation mm-hmm. so action is a very specific uh, constraint and I think one of the role of the prefrontal cortex on a very general view is to um, to uh, introduce this constraint into uh, into internal processing. So action is about choosing, it's about uh, seriality, it's, uh, and you basically, the prefrontal function introduces all these constraints in the way the mind or cognitive process occur in the brain. Mm-hmm. So action is very important. And second, uh, of course, uh, utility and uh, values, if you want, are important. But, uh, of course, they're important because uh, you need uh, value to know what is good for you or not. But value is very archaic. And I don't think that value is actually one of the key components of the prefrontal function. It's a key component of action and decision-making, of course. But I think the prefrontal function is more... uh, related to um, understanding and learning what seems to be a true representation of the mm-hmm. world than really what, uh, mm-hmm. what is good or bad. Because I think even the most simple insect, uh, the brain of the most simple insect, know in, so in one way what is good and bad for, uh, for the organism. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, what is specific to the human prefrontal function is that we have all this kind of, uh, we can say, reasoning process that uh, are not so much interesting in uh, values, but mm-hmm. are also interesting in what is true, what is uh, what can be predicted, mm-hmm. uh, what is reliable, and so on and so on. Right. But now, if I combine it, because on the one hand you're saying it's action, and action is unitary at each point in time, I can execute only one. I have one body to act with. But on the other hand, you talk about, let's say, modeling the world, context, and so on. So these would be two functions. So the action selection component of this, where you actually are, are, are collapsing all of this, this, these possibilities that you, that you can engage with, to collapse that into one interpretation, one action, you see both of these things reside in frontal areas, or is that in synergy with other areas? No, of course. Uh, I mean, uh, the prefrontal cortex is in synergy in most uh, uh, other uh, associative areas in the brain. Um, I mainly focus on the prefrontal cortex because, <laughs> in one sense, I think it's it's simpler because this usually other associative regions are actually, I think, um, at the interface between peripheral system like uh, sensory system, like the visual. L- let us talk about the parietal regions. Mm-hmm. The parietal uh, cortex is very complex, actually, because it's at the interface between all these uh, low-level sensory uh, systems, like vision and whatever. 
and uh, interfacing this system with uh, this uh, internal cognitive system, which is the prefrontal mm -hmm. cortex. So you have a two level of complexity within this region, whereas in the prefrontal cortex, it's more, uh, it's far away from this peripheral system. And I think, um, for me, at least today, I think uh, it's easier to understand what's going on in the prefrontal cortex than what's going on in some uh, this uh, other associative area, like mm -hmm. the, Uh, temporal associative regions. Right, the exactly. They are very complex. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure nobody has a very good idea about what's going on right. in this region. Mm -hmm. In the parietal cortex, we have some cue about mm -hmm. some specific things. But this is a huge region. There are so many things going on that I think... It, uh, that's what I like with the prefrontal... I, I, I have the feeling that I understand something mm -hmm. about the prefrontal right. cortex. But now, if you had to choose, right? Because, like I said earlier, you, you, you both... You emphasize both action... Unitary action, and you emphasize something like context and, mm. and internal model. Mm. You see them both as a function of prefrontal cortex, or do you see prefrontal cortex more as maintaining, let's say, these representations of what is possible? Or you see it as, as together that there's both representations of possible together no, with... I think the this is, no, I think this is exactly the converse. The prefrontal cortex force the the mind, the human mind, the cognitive system everywhere in the brain, not to, uh, not to multiply mm -hmm. uh, many possibilities. Okay. And it forced to make a choice mm -hmm. in one sense, to say, okay, uh, the most probable interpretation of what I see in the scene is this, so I am going to act like that. And then it's not necessary guys, other guys, to represent... Uh, other alternatives mm -hmm. because we decide to do that so okay. now we go for that mm -hmm. and at some point you need this you need to simplify the representation otherwise I mean uh, the system saturates very easily and very fast uh, very rapidly uh, in uh, making uh, inference about uh, what is possible mm -hmm. so I think this is a region that which means that it's a decision region that, mm -hmm. that really make decision in the sense that that exclude alternative interpretation Okay, but then, so w w we can later look at how many alternatives you, you, you might want to consider, but then you, what you emphasize is that, um, that there are actually three sources of information in prefrontal cortex, right? You talked about context, um, episodic events or memory, and expected rewards. So how, what are the boundaries of, of, of these notions, right? So... What's the difference in exactly between context of action and episodic memory, for instance? Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so, uh, the idea is that the context is something that is present when you make the selection. So, there is no uh, basic, uh, in, in a basic way, there is no memory involved. Uh, the context is present here. Of course, it involves some memorized representation about how the, co the context is connected to your action. Mm -hmm. But the context is present, basically. It's, it's part of your environment where you make the selection. Uh, episodic events is the past, basically. It's everything that happened in the past that, of course, you can memorize or not, and that may influence your uh, actions. And I would say the 
opposite things is expected reward, mm-hmm. which is in the future, or expected right. outcome more generally mm-hmm. is about the future, mm-hmm. and it's uh, just the, the symmetric of uh, episodic events. Mm-hmm. So, so you so have basically, the, the idea is very simple. I mean, you have the past, the present, information from the past, episodic event. The context is information from the present. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and the future. Very <laughs> yeah, simple. <laughs> but this is, of course, in its generality, this also becomes again problematic, right? Because, yeah, no, I agree, yeah. because each of these will be bounded in, in some way. So if you say, look, the prefrontal or the frontal lobes have have access to past, present, and future, the question arises like, okay, if we imagine that, that these are not of infinite capacity, there must be boundaries on this. There must be aspects of past, present, future that you are considering because they're highly relevant and there, there will probably be many aspects of it that you fully have to neglect to, to stay operational. So where, where would you draw that line? I think the line uh, is drawn by your internal representation, by your learning, by your experience. Mm-hmm. So your internal model, what is very important is that, and I think this is one of the roles of other associative regions is to uh, memorize and to implement and to cut internal model of the world. Mm-hmm. So according to your internal model, I mean, a past event, even very close to your action, could be totally irrelevant mm-hmm. and not uh, deserving to be memorized. Or this kind of event could happen, I mean, a long time ago, and uh, could be very informative because your internal model tell you actually mm-hmm. what is important in the world and not. And this is to be learned. And this is why I think the interna- the, this other associative region, that is the parietal or the temporal cortex, are very complex because mm-hmm. this is probably where uh, all these internal models that allow to capture information from the world uh, to make your selections uh, are uh, encoded. Mm-hmm. And the prefrontal, for example, the prefrontal cortex is organized in a way that it can make a difference between uh, what is, uh, what is uh, part of the immediate context. So there are some specific regions in the prefrontal cortex that allow you to include immediate information in your choice. But the prefrontal context by itself doesn't know what or which immediate information is useful in mm-hmm. this situation. It just can say, okay, it just can include this in the selection process. Mm-hmm. So its role is really at the, uh, at the very end of the selection process mm-hmm. to make the selection and to be able to include as many as informations that can be processed by your internal models to elsewhere in the brain in the, in the mm-hmm. action selection process. Okay, th- so then in some sense you're saying the, the magic resides in these areas at the interface between the sensory systems and the frontal lobe, where in some way these internal models are constructed. But then, Eastern, uh, I, I guess I, I would expect that the frontal area would also add some intrinsic aspects to that processing and not just be, let's say, a selector driven and enslaved by information provided by other systems. So what would then be this added value? So uh, the, uh, one of the added values is that it's a monitoring system too. This system, this is what usually other people, uh, they call metacognition in one mm-hmm. sense. Uh, it means that it's a system that monitors all the time uh, the processing, the behavior, 
and is able to make some important switch. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, for example, you may have an internal system, a very sophisticated system in the parietal cortex that you use to behave. And what and the pre what the added value of the prefrontal cortex is to monitor all the time whether I should perseverate with this very complex strategy or possibly adjusting it, or should I something wrong with this strategy and mm -hmm. I, I, I need to switch to something else. So this right. is really the added value of the prefrontal okay. cortex. Mm -hmm. To have this kind of meta-cognitive uh, role mm -hmm. in uh, judging whether I should perseverate, mm -hmm. continue to learn, or uh, to switch to something else and just right. to give up with that and to mm -hmm. with this uh, behavior and to try something else. Right. This is exactly what the problem in learning When you learn something, of course you make errors or you get some negative feedbacks. At some point, there is a system that needs to say, okay, you, do, you make this error, but perseverate to mm -hmm. learn. Or, too many errors, it's no more valuable to learn this. You should change and give mm -hmm. up and do something else. Right. And this is the added value of the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. Should I perseverate in what I am doing, in what I am learning, or should I give up and switch to something mm -hmm. else. Right. But then, so, so this, is not, this is clear, right? So now we have sort of a functional understanding um, of, of the, this frontal area. And then in your, already in your early work on this area, you, you seem to, to have identified a fairly clean mapping, if you want, of, of these functional components onto specific structures in the frontal lobe. So could you explain that in a bit more detail? Uh, so the idea is that, uh, because as I said before, action is very important, the idea is that the prefrontal cortex is organized uh, on the basis of uh, the motor system, motor premotor system. And the more you go more interiorly, the more you added some layers that allow you to add some additional information in the, in the decision process. So this is the general idea of the organization. And the general idea is that uh, the best, I would say, the goal of the prefrontal system is not to be involved in one sense. Mm -hmm. That is that the more you are able to use routine or to routinize your action, it's good. Uh, so it means that you recruit additional layers when the routine in lower layer are not enough to resolve ambiguities in your mm -hmm. actions. So... In that way, you recruit more and more interiorly uh, regions in the prefrontal cortex to, to solve the decision problem because uh, decision is, is a problem first <laughs> right. rather than a solution. You But know? then if you recruit more areas, um, what's the criteria to do that and how okay. deep can you go? Yeah. So the, so the idea is that uh, first... Uh, Uh, of course, you have the, the basic st uh, stimulus that triggers the actions, and this kind of stimulus-response association are stored in the premotor cortex. So this is a very basic level. Then, if you, if you have some ambiguities at this level, the first thing you want to know is whether in the immediate context, in the present context, there are some cues that help to disambiguate this. And this is the role of the posterior prefrontal regions that just lie next to the premotor cortex. 
So this is the first layer to disambiguate actions, mm -hmm. selection. Then if in the, in the immediate context, I mean, there are no cues that help you to, the, to, to, uh, to know which action you should select, then you go more anteriorly, and in this layer you have regions that have access to more distant information, more temporally distant information. And as we uh, said, mainly uh, episodic information in the past, events that occur maybe uh, one minute ago that may provide some cues. And, uh, and then, you, then you have the frontal pole, right, which has a specific role, which allows you to consider multiple alternatives, mm -hmm. and which is important just to b break the pure seriality of actions mm -hmm. and to be able to, uh, to consider uh, several alternatives in, uh, in, in the selection process. And so this is more or less the way I, I think, and of course we have data that uh, provide evidence about this organization that uh, I think the prefrontal cortex is organized. So you, you would see it as, as a three-step process? Yes. Uh, yeah, I would say that basically I think these are three steps. So there is a sensory motor level, then there is a contextual level, that allow you to uh, select appropriate sensory motor association according to the present context, and then an additional layer that provides you uh, information about the past, episodic event. And then there is a specific regions, so the top layer, which is a frontopolar cortex that help, that enable you to process different alternatives at mm -hmm. the same time, to consider different alternatives that might be influence uh, the selection process. Right. But now, so if I face a certain problem-solving task, mm. who decides that I switch processing level? Or which system and what criteria would, would switch between these, these levels of processing? So you can see a, a problem like... Uh, an environment that you don't know and that you travel within. Like a city, you arrive in a, in a new city, you have no plan, and basically you travel within this city. And uh, so it, I think uh, that every, can, every problem can be reduced to, uh, to navigating into an unknown space and find a, a, a way, a path mm -hmm. within this. And uh, so it means that at the end, you, at, the, at the beginning, you first start by some very basic routine, maybe on store in the premotor cortex. And at some point, this routine will fail because uh, this is a new situation, a new city. And then you start to see whether uh, in, the immediate, uh, in the immediate environment, there are some cues that will trigger in your memory some other... Mm -hmm. Uh, basic routine you learn somewhere else. Yeah, but some some system must be monitoring this, right? Some system must be monitoring, like, okay, sensory cues are not helping me now. So there must be some some integrator somewhere with some threshold that says, okay, we're lost at the level of sensory cues. Let's move on. Let's try context. So I guess it's really that sequential and that scheduled, or are these? No, of course everything is combined. Uh, mm -hmm. It's 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 just an easy way to uh, to describe things. Uh, okay, so in, in your mind, this run, all runs concurrently. All these systems run in parallel, 
at the same time generating yes, solutions. Yes, of course, there is no region that are switch on or switch off. Mm -hmm. uh, always, I mean, the context, context where you are integrated mm -hmm. within the, uh, the process. Yeah, but so what I'm asking for, on the one hand, you were saying earlier, this, this frontal area has, has this intrinsic property to monitor and to, to regulate if you want. But now, if we look at how this system is deployed in, in a task, where it actually performs multiple functions in parallel, this in itself would require some form of monitoring. So that raises then this question, okay, where is that coming from? Because it's, it's monitoring, our other, monitoring other areas, taking that into account in its own processing, but now we need a monitor that monitors the monitor. So how is that done? No, no, I, uh, yeah, I see what you mean, but um, there is only one step of money. I don't think, mm -hmm. but this is a, an interesting question by, by itself. Uh, your question is whether there are some monitoring of the monitoring process. Mm -hmm. Because in one sense, we can go uh, with no uh, Infinite limit, regress, infinite. exactly. My view is that there is only one level of monitoring. Mm -hmm. So basically, you have the basic process, and then you have the monitoring process. And the prefrontal cortex is about this level of monitoring. Mm -hmm. And they don't have they, they don't have systems. They don't. Uh, there is no system that basically monitor what. Uh, there is no recursive way uh, mm -hmm. of monitoring. I think in the mm -hmm. um, in the prefrontal, we have some evidence about that. Some tiny evidence about that. When you ask people to. You know, uh, this. Uh, we know that the prefrontal cortex is important uh, in uh, in interrupt in suspending a task you mm -hmm. are performing for performing another task. Mm -hmm. uh, what we notice is that people are very bad in doing this process recursively twice. That is, you interrupt a first task to perform a subtask. When I say interrupt, I don't say stopping. I mm -hmm. just say you interrupt, you suspend it. Sure. So you have to keep some information yeah. about the task. So you suspend it, then you switch to a subtask to perform it. And so people can do that very easily. But when you ask them to suspend this secondary task to perform a tertiary task, then they got real problems. Mm. So that it seems that they don't have the ability to to have a two-level monitoring system. Mm -hmm. Right. It's tiny mm. evidence, but mm -hmm. it's some evidence. No, but it's, it's uh, an interesting prediction, mm, right? Mm, mm. So, but are you, in some sense you're saying, look, overall the brain is organized in such a way that it hopes the frontal areas don't get involved because it means it knows what to do automatically. So, how is that a link to this whole debate on uh, on controlled versus automated processing because it's not only now about the decision-making, it's about also the discovery of the structure in the decision-making problem so that you can automate it. So how does that play out? Um, as far as I understand your question, I s for me, automation is, uh, is a process by itself. Mm -hmm. And when I say that uh, the goal of the prefrontal function is not to be involved, it means that when it is involved, it means basically that you face a situation that uh, you don't really know what to do mm -hmm. uh, about. And uh, but I'm not sure there is, a, there is no there is no process control process that controls the autom automatization. If no, you want. 
Automatization mm -hmm. is by default what's occur. Mm -hmm. But, But it fails. Uh, When it fails, the prefrontal cortex is engaged. Okay. But, But this is a default. There is a default. Mm -hmm. I think this is this notion of default. I mean, you you are involved in uh, robots. Mm -hmm. I think the notion of default. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I think the notion of default behavior mm -hmm. is very important. You don't think this is the same in robots? Of course. That you need to have mm -hmm. some defaults. Sure. If everything mm -hmm. goes wrong, so I do that mm -hmm. by default. Yes. Now, what my qu my what I'm after is so now we have this. You also call this 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 um, cascade of cognitive control, mm, 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 right? Mm, this is really mm, what you described mm, previously. Mm, mm. But now, if I if I engage in a certain task, like talking to you, mm. um, if we would do this twenty times over, and I would say the same things, at some point in time, I don't have to invent questions anymore because I know them by heart. I've automated mm, this task. Mm, 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 mm. So, but do you see that automation? As as an, an active process that is regulated by by this frontal area, or do you see this as being a concurrent process dependent on other neural structures that is just picking up these regularities again and automates them? I think it's even simply uh, it's sensory motor model, internal model that is stored in probably a premotor region, some basal ganglia, and some uh, posterior associative regions. And it's become more or less encapsulated in this system. Mm -hmm. And it can be just triggered or stopped as a wall by the prefrontal system. Mm -hmm. But then it can be processed, I mean, uh, by itself. Mm -hmm. It's run by itself. That's what... Uh, you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, it's become a, full consist a fully consistent representation driving behavior. Mm -hmm. But... but Do, um, you, do you think that this distinction then, controlled automatic, is actually helpful to un to look at this system? I think so. I, at least, uh, yes, I think it's an important distinction mm -hmm. because uh, for the prefrontal function, I, I, I really think that uh, prefrontal functions works above what's going on in uh, automatic systems. Mm -hmm. So there is... what. A task would be uh, as complex as possible as far as it is uh, automatized. It is stored in this wonderful area, which are the premotor cortex, mm -hmm. the parietal cortex, the temporal cortex, which have an impressive representational power. And it could run automatically. Mm -hmm. And uh, the prefrontal cortex is not concerned by this. Mm -hmm. There are other regions that do this job perfectly. Right. Just the prefrontal cortex want to know when this should mm -hmm. be activated and when should not be activated. Mm -hmm. right. So this is the monitoring part. Mm -hmm. And and of course, the monitoring part is is a way of controlling things. Mm -hmm. Right. This is a notion of yes. control. Mm -hmm. Control is also a notion of, um, I mean, uh, acting a little bit mm -hmm. on things. But monitoring, of course, sounds easy, but it does imply that you have norms of monitoring. You have to have criteria on the on the grounds of which mm -hmm. you say like, oh, wait, this is now a relevant exception that we have to deal with. Right? So to just say monitoring is... Mm. So yeah, yeah. Is so there, is, is a, there are two views for... Uh, two general views, which are... Uh, one view is that everything is relative. That is that... Uh, you always monitor um, 
different alternatives and you are interested in selecting the most relevant alternative within the one you monitor. Mm-hmm. It's fine. The problem with this view is that you always you are always stuck within this uh, this collection of alternatives you monitor. You have no system that allow you to say, okay, I should look elsewhere, mm-hmm. uh, not w- just within this uh, small collection of mm-hmm. uh, alternative I can uh, collect to know uh, maybe to select a, an even more relevant uh, alternative. So the other notion is that rather to to compare alternative together, it's just for each alternative you monitor, you try to have a measure whether this alternative remains reliable or relevant or not. To, mm-hmm. try, to, to try to have an absolute measure mm-hmm. of uh, whether this alternative is, let us say, relevant. Quite a easy term. And when you have, uh, and how do you say uh, an alternative is relevant? So there are, I think, probably different factors that can contribute to judge an alternative as relevant or irrelevant, but one important is its first, its ability to predict uh, action outcome. Mm-hmm. I use, for example, I use this, uh, let us say that a, st- a behavioral strategy is like a map with some paths. Uh, so you use a map with this path, what you expect first that when you follow the path, you expect to see uh, in, the, in the real world what you uh, expect on the map. So the first, the first important criteria for relevance is uh, the ability to predict mm-hmm. the result of your actions. Mm-hmm. There might be other, but I think this is probably one of the most important. And uh, this is the way uh, I, I think the prefrontal uh, functions monitor uh, strategies. Uh, that is, many, in an absolute way, for each strategy, try to figure out whether this strategy is relevant or not. Mm-hmm. But this has interesting consequences, right? Because then, although with respect to action, you might want to say, I want to go to one, then if you want to be able to monitor its outcome, you must actually be able to load in memory any reference for future uh, consultation. So I mean, that basically means a whole, a whole set of possible outcomes must now be considered because any action in a complex world can have a quite wide range of consequences so that this world is dynamic. Uh First, I mean, uh, if when I talk about uh, behavioral strategy, I think uh, about a set of represent- internal representations that include representation about what kind of outcome I expect when I do this action, uh, this action in this situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, of course, you, uh, and this is what you have in your memory, basically. Mm-hmm. You know that if, for example, I, uh, I am at home and I press on this interrupter, that I will get some lights mm-hmm. 
So you, you learn this. This is mm -hmm. part of your strategy. What? Yeah, but for the, all I'm saying is for monitoring to work effectively, it must consider a, a set of possible outcomes. It's not only one. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, maybe in this example there is only one, but you may have several... Yeah, I, I see what you mean. Which uh, you mean, for example, I do an action and I may have some a chain of consequences. That's this right. is what you mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, I think uh, in one sense uh, there is no reason to believe that uh, in principle you can code all the consequences. But of course there are some mm -hmm. problems of dimensionality. Right. Uh, so it's possible that at, at some point there are some criteria that allow you to identify some landmarks, mm -hmm. specific uh, outcome and landmarks. And it's part of the complexity of the system, of course. Right. And... Uh, no, that's, that, that's an interesting... It's an interesting counterpoint because you could say, well, one thing what I'm doing, I'm pruning away all less preferable alternatives. So I have my one interpretation of the task and the action I have to okay. execute. But you could say conversely, the more complex the task, the more pruning I have to do to get to my action, the more outcome alternatives I have to consider for my monitoring. Yes. Uh... As an example, we can walk out of the studio, we can go through that door, but maybe uh, Giovanni, our sound engineer, stands there with the baseball bat to, mm. right, to chase us down the hall. We, we mm. don't know. Mm. Or maybe the building has disappeared, etc. Right. So these are all consequences, all future states of the world that we must be able to consider. Yeah, but you don't consider it. Okay. You know, I mean, uh, this is because when you are in the studio, you are you know the studio, you are used with the studio, so you know that uh, in 99% uh, of time when you use it, nobody wait for you with a baseball uh, mm -hmm. bat. Bat. Mm -hmm. So you don't code that. Or baguette, maybe the French version. <laughs> okay. Baguette. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, okay. you know, every situation. Uh, uh, this is part. Every situation, I mean, uh, if you go to the airport, you have some expectations, mm -hmm. okay? Of course, if you go to a place where nobody looks like what you uh, experienced before, mm -hmm. uh, I think you start to be very scary, but it never really happened. When, <laughs> right. Okay, now this is resolved, right? So you're saying, no, monitoring acts upon a rather explicitly defined world model. Mm. which is the same one that, that, that feeds into the action you generate and then also the monitoring of its outcomes. This, this is roughly what, what, what you would say. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, so this, this frontal area is really compressing everything down into just one unitary interpretation of, of what you're doing. Yes, I think, uh, and this is an important point, what you say that, uh, at least for my son, is that there are discrete entities which are different world, uh, or I, I call that strategy or behavioral mm -hmm. strategy. Mm -hmm. I mean, psychology, they said task set, but it's, it's the same concept. That is, you have discrete set, which are consistent collection of, uh, each set is a consistent collection of internal world representation. And that can be uh, selected by it uh, independently. Mm -hmm. 
And this is the role of the prefrontal cortex to select them independently, to monitor them independently, to possibly perseverate with one set in order that this set develop and learn better mm -hmm. the world. Right. And that's it. So this is a basic exactly. unit that the mm -hmm. prefrontal cortex manipulates. Mm -hmm. This is this discrete set. So this exactly. is, there is this notion of discreteness, yes. which I think is important. Now that's an important point, right? Because also in your experimental work, I think this is really one of the elements you emphasize a lot, right? So one set of experiments you, you described was about a comparison between, let's say, rule-free tasks and rule-based tasks, right? So, so why is that an important manipulation for uh, understanding what this frontal area is doing? So it's, uh, there are several, uh, I think, important things related to this issue. Um, first, there is a general, I would say, um, questions. Uh, this very general question, why do we follow rules? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, we follow rules all the time. I mean, uh, especially in, in when you behave in a group. There are some rules, you follow rules, and often at your expense of your own preferences. So there is... For me, it was one of the important things to understand why basically we follow rules. And especially in human groups, I mean, there are some uh, many rules are about cooperative rules and um, coordination rules, and especially coordination rules that are very sensitive to uh, deviations from others. I mean, mm -hmm. a, a, a coordination rule is meaningful if, or if everybody follows the rules, mm -hmm. okay? like uh, uh, driving on the right. Um, so, uh, the, so the idea was to, okay, s if, a ru uh, if rules are very important to follow in groups, it means that there might be some specific process that allow rules to prevalence on subjective values or subjective preferences. So mm -hmm. I was interested by this question, this general question. So it's more a question about what is, how it is possible that rules that are very sensitive to individual variation develop in human groups. So there mm -hmm. might be some very specific mechanisms or functional architecture in the brain that make it possible. Mm -hmm. so, so a very general evolutive question. The second question was about... It's related to the notion of context. So a rule is basically you have cues, and you, these cues do, uh, uh, trigger some specific behavior. And you have rewards, expected rewards, that can uh, drive some uh, behavior. So the question is exactly how these two uh, processes, what we can identify independently, interact. Mm -hmm. And this is related to what I said. There is, of course, the notion of values, which is important to select action. But the rule seems not to be about values, but uh, about relevance. What is relevant in this situation? Mm -hmm. So that's why I was interested about this issue, is whether this notion of relevance or reliability what, uh, also, uh, is really uh, relevant, or whether rules in simply some representations that at some point are transformed into values, subjective value, or modulate what is why I can expect as a reward in the future, 
so that every selection end up as a choice between two uh, options with different values. Uh-huh. And what we found is that actually uh, this is not the case. Uh, we found that it's uh, according to our data, the selection process at the end occur in the rule space. And preferences or expected reward are just some additional information that is provided uh, to this uh, rule-based space mm-hmm. to make the selection. Right. But uh, the rule, uh, the rules prevail on the selection. That is, if you have rules that, another way to, to say things maybe more explicitly, that as long as you have rules that allow you to, to decide what to do, mm-hmm. The system don't care about your preferences, but also in the selection mm. process. Of course, it care it when it is evaluate the uh, the result of the action, action outcome. But in the selection process, it doesn't care. The prefer- subjective preferences or expected reward start to influence selection as long as the rules become ambiguous. Mm-hmm. But now, so so to underlying this is like a two-dimensional space that also maps onto the anatomy of a frontal cortex mm-hmm. where you where you in your this is was the idea you were sort of investigating here that the medial along a medial axis it's more value oriented and along an, and lateral axis so towards the outside it's more rule oriented right so um and then and so what you're saying that in your experiment with the fMRI you did it gave you the impression that the real action selection, like the, the dominant axis here, would then be more this lateral axis where the rules reside. But is it really that that discrete? I mean, can, uh, on the grounds of which can you really say that? Uh, so, first, there are many evidence that uh, there is this dual system. So, the first is that uh, the medial system, as you said, that is related to processing. Uh, expected reward, values, subjective preference, uh, whatever how you call that. And this is, uh, this uh, processing I- is implemented uh, mainly in the medial prefrontal system. Then you have this lateral prefrontal system that seems to uh, be involved whenever you have some rules, some instructions, some internal, rup- internal model that uh, that drives the selection. And we know also, of course, from anatomy that these two systems are tightly connected. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so the idea is that uh, you have... I think this is part of... Uh, uh, I think there are two possible views. Mm-hmm. One view is the homogeneous view, that is... There is no real specializations, and uh, preferences and rules are mixed in the interaction between the mm-hmm. two systems. Uh, at the end, the selection is made by the system as a whole. Mm-hmm. Okay, the, the system relaxed right. to a given state, and it makes the selection. It's a possible view. The other view is that there is one of these subsystems, the median, the preference system, or the lateral, the rule system, that actually uh, is the system that makes the final decision, that commit behavior. Mm-hmm. That is, the uh, information coded this is actually what the, syst- 
what the system or what the organism is going to uh, do mm -hmm. as action. And uh, we found evidence about this second uh, interpretation, this second hypothesis, that is that the lateral system make final selections mm -hmm. that commit the organism. And my, in my view, and the question is why it's like that, uh, in my view is that, uh, you know, in human, the lateral prefrontal cortex developed a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a rule system. So I think what is very specific to human is that uh, we have the ability to build walls all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the selection is moved to the lateral system where basically there is all the process that allow to learn rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, promoting, therefore, all this, uh, the learning of all and the use of all in the selection process because we are social organisms and in, s in groups, mm -hmm. you need rules. Right. It's very important. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially, as I said at the beginning, coordination rules mm -hmm. are critical in right. groups. But now you, so you make the, in so much you're describing here, you also used, you, you described in terms of a, a utilitarian model versus a normative model, right? So the utilitarian one would be more value dominated and the normative one is more rule dominated. Mm -hmm. And you're saying, look, your data is pointing you in this direction that this normative model is, if you want, more dominating by the action, the action mm -hmm. outcome than, uh, than by this utilitarian model. But now... Uh, so the experiments on which you base this, which is sort of human subjects performing different decision-making mm -hmm. tasks, and you mm -hmm. do fMRI on them, so you look at the brain activity in, in this in, in these mm -hmm. areas. Th there are of course a number of of caveats, if you want, because uh, imagine I interpret your statement in a very categorical sense. You really say, look, we have that that would have the implication that I have a utilitarian module that just worries about value. This is more in the medial prefrontal. Uh, cortex. Then I have this normative rule-based system sitting more lateral mm -hmm. as a well-delineated, again, uh, module. And they, in, they, and they exchange well-defined information chunks, if you want. One is informing the other about the value, and the other one is informing back about the rules. Right? But now I could argue, well, but yeah, that's great. That's a really nice way to interpret the data, and it is consistent with the experiments you performed. There's mm -hmm. no doubt mm -hmm. about it. But for starters, uh, the signals you interpret become significant only at the scale of seconds, while the performance is occurring at the, at the scale of hundreds of seconds, of, of milliseconds. So uh, may it's possible that the neural process that really is driving this action selection is really below the radar of your fMRI evaluation and that what you're analyzing is maybe more, let's say, how you process decisions in memory after the decision has been made than the real, let's say, the real-time performance of the subject. Um, yes, uh, what... Of course, uh, this is a problem with fMRI data that uh, we don't have access to the millisecond uh, time uh, uh, scale, which sure. is important for neural processing. What I can tell you is that if you uh, if you look at uh, neuronal data on this uh, on these regions, I mean uh, they are consistent with what we found. I mean, 
Uh, we know, for example, that in the dorsomedial uh, in the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, we have neurons that encode action outcomes uh, associations, mm -hmm. uh, and more uh, uh, in, in in a larger proportion than in the lateral prefrontal regions. And we know also that during a decision, these regions mobil um, activate first in medial regions. Uh, and before uh, neurons in lateral prefrontal mm -hmm. regions. So we have uh, neurons in the lateral prefrontal regions activate closer to the, to the decision time mm -hmm. than neurons in the medial prefrontal cortex. So it's consistent with what I am saying. Right, okay. Uh, but then there's still another missing link, which is that I could argue, but look, if we look at these cortical areas, if we just, I, I give you a cubic millimeter of this medial prefrontal cortex, and I give you another cubic millimeter of lateral prefrontal cortex, and I don't tell you where they came from, you will have a hard time on morphological grounds to tell me what's what. So, I mean, there there's huge similarity between these circuits. So what, what makes them then so different in their functional contribution in decision-making? Uh... I think uh, apparently uh, wh what is different is that they are located uh, in different positions in the network. Mm -hmm. So they each have access to different type of information. And uh, um, and what is important at the end to describe the function of every region, ideally, is to be able to describe the inputs mm -hmm. and the output of these regions. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, And of course, we, we cannot do that for uh, extent, uh, um, comprehensively for uh, a region mm -hmm. because there are many connections mm -hmm. from everywhere. But uh, at least, uh, if we, if I take this example uh, about medial and lateral prefrontal region, I mean, if you if we try to understand what kind of information the medial region send to the lateral regions and conversely what kind of information the lateral regions send to the medial regions, we, we, we see that this is not the same. Well, but, but in some sense with your data, you don't really know what, what travels over these axons, right? You only know something about the <laughs> covariance of their activity under certain task conditions. And the information exchange could possibly be regulated through another structure. Yes, it might be not direct for sure, but it, this data tells you that in one direction there is something happening which is not the same as in the other mm -hmm. direction. Okay. This is what it means. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but That is, the information that is shared between the two regions mm -hmm. differ in one direction and right. in the other direction. Mm -hmm. So it, does, it provides some cues about the function of every region. Mm -hmm. Because my deep belief uh, is that uh, I think every region is like an, uh, as a specific operation, implement a specific operation, mm -hmm. which is quite abstract and quite uh, it's not a v uh, and and uh, every every region is like an operator, if you want, an information mm -hmm. processing operator, and of course, uh, at least what I try to know it's which operator is implemented in this given region and so on. Sure. Now, I understand that, but, but now what, what, what we see is that if the local circuit is fairly uniform, right, the information exchange we cannot directly assess, so that means possibly 
there are actually other areas that are dictating this function. Right? For instance, let's say it might be an interaction with basal ganglia-related structures and so on. We don't know. Okay. But then I could argue, hey, but wait one moment, HN. This might also imply that it's actually these tertiary structures that we have not identified that are really doing the decision-making. And these other guys in this prefrontal area you're measuring from are just echoing in, in a way you can detect with your, with your system, with your device, the, the, the result of that decision that has been made. Uh, yes, you're perfectly right. I mean, uh, but I think it's uh, in part of the scientific process. It's first to start with the most simple mm-hmm. hypothesis. Okay, we found correlation or some information transfer from one region to another. We know that these regions are deeply and uh, densely connected. Okay, if we so if we uh, observe some influence. The first most simple interpretation is to consider that it goes directly from one region to Mm -hmm. the other. It might be wrong at some point. Mm -hmm. But I think we should always first by the most simple interpretation. Mm -hmm. As I said at the very beginning, with the most simple model. And then you complexify Mm -hmm. the model uh, 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 Mm -hmm. gradually if you need. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I'm sure it's a simplistic view in one sense. Mm -hmm. I don't say that this is... uh, It's probably much more complex, but... It's always useful to start from very simple principle and to refine this progressively. Absolutely. And uh, I am sure that mm. uh, in the selection uh, process, uh, basal ganglia, of course, mm. involves there are many loops. Mm-hmm. It's it's perfect. Uh, it's true, but uh, you need to start from mm-hmm. one point. I mean, you no know. problem. No problem, but Th- but why, what? But wh- it's true that uh, we don't. Uh, it's good to have simple model, but uh, you have to never forget that your model are just model and mm-hmm. simple model. Sure, that is exactly. probably wrong at yes. some point, and for sure they are mm-hmm. wrong at some mm-hmm. point. But what I'm challenging you on is that, and sometimes I'm saying, well, maybe your model is not as simple as it could be because you are already assuming that these are like two distinct modules with distinct functions that are exchanging well-defined information. Well, these are actually really pretty strong assumptions. That's why I used anatomy as an example. If I go to the anatomy, it will be really difficult to distinguish these circuits, uh, medial, lateral. They They will look rather similar, and their differences will be in, let's say, fairly subtle differences in how other structures project into them. And, and receive information from them. But these are all really minute. These will be minute variations. So so I'm sort of challenging your idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I completely buy the method, but I would say, well, but maybe this is not a minimal interpretation. Yeah, you said that it's already quite complex. But yeah. why, why is it complex? Uh, it's complex because simply we consider a coupling system mm-hmm. with reciprocal connections. Mm-hmm. And our mind no, doesn't seem to be very well... Uh, adapted to uh, to understand reciprocal interaction. Well, as, as long as you have reciprocal interaction, mm-hmm. you need mathematical model to under, to make Fair sense. Fair enough. However, yeah. you do assume that within each of these modules, a very specific function is performed because mm-hmm. one does mm-hmm. value-based mm-hmm. operations, the other one does rule-based operations, and that's not necessarily simple. Yes, uh, yes. But this is what I said at the very beginning, Imagine that, okay, let us, if you raise the question, 
Okay, mm -hmm. we have this media region, we have this astral region. What could be the difference between the two regions, functionally? Mm -hmm. If you start to think, you look at the, the literature, you look at all the data uh, uh, many labs and uh, people collected, and you say, okay, what could be the differences, the functional differences, the functional segregation between these two regions, if it exists? You may end up with the conclusion that, okay, they are quite similar. Mm -hmm. And this is, as I said at the beginning, this is a homogeneous view. But you say, okay, let us really think that they are make different functions. And you cannot end up with so many different assumptions, you know. Mm -hmm. There are a few, but not so much. Right. And uh, because still we have data and there is a consistency also. Mm -hmm. You need to look at when you build this kind of hypothesis. It's not consistent to imagine that, for mm -hmm. example, uh, I don't know, but... Uh, <coughs> yeah, this is a strong, an important point, right? Because if you look at your more recent experiments, you actually have found only further support for this way of thinking about the system as opposed to... Um, falsification of it so mm. this this i think would, would would argue for that and um so th that had a lot to do with with um these experiments where, where you looked at uh, the transfer the transfer of of value in different or tasks of varying uh complexity so um and also in these tasks what you did which i think was extremely interesting you really looked at how different models of decision making actually scaled on these tasks what their problems were and on the basis of that you you have formulated an alternative where you say look actually all these other models that have been very popular in literature they might be very interesting but they fail on really explaining what this frontal area is doing so what was the trajectory there exactly uh you mean uh, okay the way we uh you mean the, your question is about the way we end up with this model yeah exactly yeah. exactly this is always uh, this is still the same process, starting with very simple stuff and try uh, to explain things with very simple models. So we have uh, and uh, it's difficult to explain. I mean, uh, well, maybe as a hint, you know. So the point was basically we're saying, okay. We look at, at, at the prefrontal cortex, right? So what can it really do in a task? Well, it can decide to, it can decide to stay. It just keeps on executing, the, following the same rule because it has been successful. Secondly, it might change, decide to switch rule because things are failing. Um, and Or it can decide, okay, I don't know what to do. I better explore. Uh, something new has to happen. Right, so and I think it was it was that consideration that really gave rise to to the model that 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 you yes. That so you the, uh, at the at the very beginning, it's an intuition about uh, that uh, something w that was largely overlooked in the research is this exploration process. There are models, there are a few models that explain how you switch in exploration. Mm -hmm. Which means that basically, for example, you learn something, and at the point the, syst the monitoring system tells that you need to switch, and in this model you just reset everything and you restart from scratch. <coughs> but in the literature, there, there was no model explaining how you switch out from exploration, mm -hmm. and uh, that is at some point. Uh, you may explore, but 
you may, when you explore, you suddenly uh, uh, you suddenly uh, notice that you can switch back to return to something you know. Mm-hmm. So you quit exploration. And there was no model on this. So that was the, the, the basic idea, that the basic intuition about, okay, we really need a monon that explains how we decide to, to explore something new mm-hmm. and how we decide to quit exploration, to mm-hmm. re-exploit what you already know. Uh, this was the intuition at the very beginning. The second intuition that we always, uh, we also need to understand the second intuition was about learning. So learning means, uh, I already said a little bit about that before, learning means experiencing negative feedback, which means that you need to persevere it. Mm-hmm. Also, you, you get negative feedback and you want to switch. So it means that there needs to be a system that pushes you to learn. And, uh, and conversely, this same system can consider that at some point it's no more valuable to perseverate, too much negative mm-hmm. feedback or whatever, and then you need to switch. So this is this intuition at the at the very beginning that helped us to at least to uh, to set the problem, mm-hmm. to to uh, to set the problem. I mean to to raise the problem. And I think in science it's very important to be able to raise problems, mm-hmm. right? And to de- uh, and to um, to delimit, uh, to circumvent a given uh, problem, mm-hmm. to raise this problem. And right. then after, uh, <coughs> given this two issue, how you explore and you quit exploration, how you persevere to learn or switch when it's no more valuable to learn. I mean, we. Uh, uh, we start developing a model at the same time an experiment and <coughs> and uh, so we develop a, a model based on our ideas, our intuitions and then we test it with uh, this experiment and of course on this experiment we tested whether some more simple or more regular model were mm-hmm. able to explain the performance. Right. And, uh, and as our intuition uh, I mean, uh, uh, provide us some cues. I mean, we, we were able to, to show that in this kind of experiment, I mean, regular models that have no exploration uh, um, uh, properties, yeah. capabilities, or no, uh, I mean, uh, cannot explain the data. And if you, and conversely, if you consider very sophisticated model, I mean normative model in the sense that statistical learning model, mm-hmm. very sophisticated model, they perform the task, of course, but they outperform human performance. They don't sh- explain human performance. Mm-hmm. What's the difference there? In what sense do they outperform humans? So first, uh, they are able to adjust to... Uh, Uncertainty and uh, the and to the viability of their environment much faster mm-hmm. than humans, mm-hmm. and they basically are able to uh, to use every kind of um, uh, every 
pieces of information mm -hmm. to inform about what should be learned and what should be uh, right. when you when to switch. Uh, in a way, which is of course implausible, mm -hmm. because but in this, so this, this was this Dirichlet uh, optimal agent, mm, right? This mm, was your mm, criterion. Yeah. So, but does it have access to other information that humans don't have access to? Or wh where no, does the, no, no, where no. does the difference come from? So, uh, one of the major difference is that this kind of model, uh, they will, for example, explore at some point, create a new uh, strategy or a new task set, but then later on, they will get a feedback. Mm -hmm. And whenever they get a new feedback, they revise all the history mm -hmm. of creating a set, new strategy. So every time they get new information, they revise the entire story. Mm -hmm. So they memorize the entire story, mm -hmm. and they try to find, mm -hmm. given any new information, what would be the best history. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's why they are very mm. powerful. Sure. Because but what they, I found interesting, though, if you compare their performance with the, to the human, indeed, in most task conditions, they were better than humans, but there were also task conditions where humans actually outperformed this optimal agent. Uh, I'm not sure you're right. I okay. Mean, no, uh, um, they don't really outperform. Um, I'm not sure I am. Yeah, I, I remember this question. Mm -hmm. um, I saw it in, in, in one of your plots, right? I mean, you have these two conditions. It's a, they're sort of um, a re re recurrent task, and there's an open task. Um, and then in one of these, um, even though the optimal agent can always adjust its full, its full policy space to any outcome, you still saw that humans with their assume, assumingly more restricted capabilities would still outperform these, these optimal agents. So I was wondering whether this had to do with, for instance, perceptual capabilities that such agents don't have and humans do have. Uh, I'm sorry, but I think you are wrong. I, okay, I don't good. see this in my graphs. I mean, maybe or we, we should have the graph. And, uh, yeah, okay, we'll, uh, look at that. we'll look at that yeah. later. That, that's very good. But then you also compare to standard algorithms like reinforcement learning models where you would basically... Um, learn learn policies given the feedback that you receive from your environment. Mm -hmm. So why does a standard reinforcement learning model fail in this task? So it fails because this model is just uh, adjusted continuously to the new contingency. So in this model, there is no memory. Mm -hmm. It just uh, you learn something, it works, and when it no more works, you just unlearn this and relearn something mm -hmm. new. But okay. you never store. Mm -hmm. uh, so if some I would specific have specific uh, mapping, you learn right. But if I would have a reinforcement learning model that would just store its different mapping, so it knows when to switch task, it would be appropriate possibly for this task for yes. for this problem. Of course, but then you need a monitoring system to know uh, when exactly to right. switch. Okay, mm -hmm. right. And, and this is exactly the point. Mm -hmm. So you start to need a monitoring mm -hmm. system. And uh, to monitor this mm -hmm. different mapping you store. And then you need a system also that decides that, uh, okay, you have learned all this mapping, but mm -hmm. you need to maybe learn now mm -hmm. a new one. Right. And, uh, and explore a new one. And we end up mm -hmm. with our model, basically. You right. Know? No, but of course, it raises the question whether it was a completely fair comparison or whether it was more like a straw man because you knew a priori 
that that model would fail given the task conditions. Of course, so, of so. course. And the task was built to make this model failing. Otherwise, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we will not have developed this model. But right. but it made no, the point. No, but it was right? most. It was yeah. It makes a point. It's just to, it's a just a, a pedagogical way to mm -hmm. to. Sh but what was interesting with the reinforcement learning model, I don't know whether you noticed mm -hmm. that it captures the overall dynamics. Mm -hmm. You see, the, I mean, yeah. it doesn't capture qualitatively the difference between mm -hmm. conditions uh, when there is a recurrent mapping mm -hmm. that uh, can be used or uh, no recurrent mapping, open condition. Mm -hmm. But it still captures the overall dynamic of adaptation. Mm -hmm. uh, which, And I think it's interesting. It shows that uh, the very important things about discriminating between models are in the details. Mm -hmm. Small, small difference at specific points that are very informative about what subjects do right. uh, or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, because the basic reinforcement model, model captures the overall dynamics, mm -hmm. which is actually an artifact of averaging across episodes. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, But now in, your, in the model you proposed, that, that was your alternative, you have, let's say, a, a Bayesian... Uh, inference process that sort of is trying to figure out what's going on in the world, how well do my policies probably match to this, right? Because also my policies are tied to, to states of the world. Then you have a hypothesis testing component and you have an exploration component, right? So how do these three components really work together in your, in your model? If you want to... Uh Isolate components, there are three components. There is the inferential buffer, the hypothesis, hypothesis testing uh, component, and the, the way we built new strategy um, from long-term memory. Mm -hmm. This is the third component. Of course, they are intrinsically linked, but... Uh, so the idea is that you can monitor only a small number of uh, concurrent strategy or policies. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, a constraint we, uh, we put uh, on the model. Then uh, you need to update this small collection. Mm -hmm. And so to update this small collection, we consider that the best way is to have an hypothesis system. I test a new policy, I start monitoring this new policy. If it seems to be reliable at the end, I continue to monitor it. Or if it's not competitive compared to other strategy, or I just uh, I, I don't need to monitor it, I mm -hmm. can discard it. So this was the, the, the idea that hypothesis, the hypothesis testing is important to update this monitoring buffer because it cannot monitor everything. And then, of course, when you create, uh, when you decide to go for a strategy which is not in the monitoring buffer for a policy, you just need to go first, I mean, you go to your long-term memory, but you don't monitor things here. So the only way you can build something from your long-term memory is to have a weighted mixture mm -hmm. of this long-term memory weighted by some uh, cues, uh, given some cues and given, of course, some internal models. And you build a new strategy from your long-term memory like that, and you try it. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and all these three components are uh, important for the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to build a new strategy is like I have a long-term memory system. In this long-term memory system, I have different policies, which effectively means I have uh, stages in every policy where I have a certain sensory state and a certain action that goes with it. And then I say, and therefore, and the future should look like this. And if I keep on doing this, I follow this chain, I get some rewards, right? And then you say, well, but what I can do, I can actually now just cut out bits and pieces of all these different policies of long-term memory and tr- build a new one, try, try a new one. So what will be the key criterion to, to, to perform a selection on, on, on the pool of, uh, of segmented, if you want, policies? So uh, the way it works in our model is that, uh, first, it's not primarily a model of long-term memory, mm-hmm. the model I described. Uh, so, of course, it's processed uh, or is described in the model in a quite simplistic way. But still, there are some important ingredients. Uh, so, one is that actually a policy which is stored in long-term memory is always stored with some internal representations that link this representation to external queue, mm-hmm. to some contextual queue, if you want. Which means that in the process of uh, mixing strategy from long-term memory, it's always weighted by the contextual queue. Mm-hmm. So it means that in a given context, when you are in a given context and you create a new strategy, the way the strategy combines in this uh, mixing process may be different uh, from, a, uh, z- from a, mix, a mixture done in a different context. Mm-hmm in other contexts. I don't know whether uh, you see what I mean. Because every strategy is turned long-term memory some contextual model that encodes the relevance of the strategy within this context. When you, you are in a given context, your mar- marginalization of your strategy in long-term memory could be rather different sure. in one no, context no. and uh, another uh, to one. To me, it's, it's clear, right? Because I have different tasks. Mm. Let's say one can be playing football and the other one can be playing tennis, mm-hmm. right? So these are different tasks, different rules. And so now dependent on the context I'm in, mm. I'm either playing tennis or mm. football, there's a different subset of policies I should now start mm. to mm. worry about to to improve my football game. But, yeah, of course. But it could be uh, more subtle than that. Of course. I mean, if you are uh, trying a new recipe in your kitchen, mm. you are not going to use a policy on the football Exactly uh, right. Field, no, no, for sure. Exactly right. This is, I yes. would say, the uh, the most evident way. Mm-hmm. But it could be more subtle because the system can have some links. For example, if you have some uh, maze, for example, and there are some cues in the maze that are related to some strategy. When you combine them, then this internal model linking external cue or contextual cue to some strategy could make the combinations at the end when you create a new strategy uh, quite subtle. Mm-hmm. Right, understand. And quite unexpected. Mm-hmm. Sure. But what I found interesting is that on the one hand you're saying, well, so now in my long-term memory, I have th- this enormous space of policies, mm-hmm. and this is stuff I did in the past, right? So this is mm-hmm. how I, l- I have mm-hmm. acquired mm-hmm. these. Mm-hmm. Yeah, along my uh, lifetime. Yeah. Exactly. But then, And then you said, but now if I, if I invent or create a new uh, 
sequence, a new policy or hypothesis mm -hmm. on, on the policy, I actually want to equalize the outcome expectation. I just this is what you call the dumb strategy. You say, look, I'm, I'm if I now invent a bunch of new policies I can try out, the predicted outcomes that I associate with them are just set to the same uniform level. So I, as if I'm randomizing this outcome space. So why why are you doing that? Why is that necessary? Yeah, uh, so the way we describe things are not exactly correct. Okay. Uh, you, you need to have... Uh, so as you said uh, before, the key point is uh, what are the criteria for monitoring mm -hmm. the relevance of strategy. And uh, of course, in a situation where you know all possible strategy, your criteria is quite simple. You just compare the... Uh, let us say the, uh, how well each strategy predicts the next uh, state and you will uh, at the end find what is uh, the strategy appropriate to this uh, situation because you know all strategy, all possible strategy, which is of course never mm -hmm. <laughs> happened in real life. Yes. So, and this means that it's very difficult to judge the, re the relevance of a strategy mm -hmm. because you don't know even all the alternative. Mm -hmm. So you need to have, at some point, an estimation about, in the different strategy I am monitoring, which is the priority that actually the, the, the true strategy doesn't belong to the one I am monitoring. Mm -hmm. And to be able to compute this probability... Exactly, you cannot. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an intractable problem. But you can estimate this probability as saying that, okay, the probability that uh, actually the right strategy doesn't belong to the monitor strategy, you can estimate it by using, as you said in your uh, question, this dummy mm -hmm. strategy that if I perform randomly, I will get this outcome. And monitoring the relevance of this random strategy is an estimation of the probability that the true strategy is not in your monitoring strategy. Mm -hmm. Right. But, an but there's an alternative. So it's a trick. It's a trick. Yeah, I, I understand. And also, it, it, it keeps things simple in mm. some sense. Yeah, very simple. Yeah. But, but I could also argue, look, let, let's take the cooking scenario. Uh, so here we have the policy space um, or the strategy space of cooking. And now certain sequences of actions have been more successful in the past than in, in your kitchen activities mm -hmm. than others. So now if I assemble a new policy taking elements of these other sequences, they act by picking them out of an existing policy that has been tested, I can make an inference about their probability to have a certain impact on outcome. For instance, let's say you have a long sequence and have something, an event sitting real, really far away from the end state of that sequence, I could say, well, the probability that that event is, is really having a big impact on outcome is probably low. However, if you have an, an event that is close to this end point, you could say, well, that probability is higher. I think it depends on the level of automatization. Okay. Even if you have a very complex strategy, but uh, every time you start with the first action, you will get at the very end this reward, mm -hmm. this outcome. 
then uh, probably in your system, I mean, the, the link between the first action and the outcome would be very strong. No, but I'm saying, can't I exploit that information in assembling a new policy and making at least an estimate of the, its outcome? For instance, I can take elements of very successful policies, so the probability that, that the new policy will be successful is high, or I can take elements of really policies that, that are not that great. You, you see the point? Yeah, I see exactly the, your point. Uh, I think it's a very complex <laughs> issue, so especially. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think this process is reasonable. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's tractable. Uh, if you can project your strategy on some topological space. Mm -hmm. It will work. Uh, for example, uh, we know that uh, many uh, spaces have a very dedicated system for spatial navigation. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's possible that within this topological system, this very specific system representing the space, because of the topology, you may some recombine things according to this uh, topological mm -hmm. space. Right. Uh, it could be also for audition, for other system. But in general, I don't think there is a, there is a system outside this topological, I, I would say, sensory space that allow, to, that allow you to uh, recombine in a clever way mm -hmm. uh, strategies. Okay. So no. this this would be an empirical hypothesis we could yeah. test. Yeah. But but then so w with your model, w which which gives a very specific prediction on how you can form, let's say, new hypotheses so that you can deal with this task condition of st of staying or switching on the basis of exploration, because this is the problem you want to solve, right? Mm. You found actually an amazing close match with human performance. So. Um, but now, so also humans were exposed to a task, but they follow rules, but the rules were switched, so they had to sort of figure out what the new rule was. But how did you assess this consistency between the model and human performance? Which were the aspects of human performance that were most now predictive, if you want, of the consistency with the model? So, uh, yes. Uh, so... Uh so first, uh, yeah, it's it's a very important question. It's 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 uh, basically how you uh, you fit a model and how you, how you compare model fit. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a complex issue. Uh, at the end, uh, we end up uh, with this model. This mo uh, this model has a nice feature: is that it predicts some specific events, mm -hmm. algorithmic events, which is predicted by the algorithm. That is, at some point, the model will create a new strategy from long-term memory. In this trial, the model predicts this. And of course, it means uh, it implies a given profile in the response given by the model following mm -hmm. this, uh, this uh, time point. It, it also predicts other type of events, very specific events, that is, at some point in a given trial, the algorithm switch out from exploration to return to exploitation by confirming the hypothetical strategy. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's associated with a given profile of response. 
the model also predicts another kind of event that uh, the hypothetical strategy needs to be rejected. Or, uh, mm-hmm. So the algorithm, there are some specific algorithmic events and we can check whether this, uh, the, how the model performs around these algorithmic events, predict what subject, mm-hmm. per, how subject performs around these events. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's important to know that these events are, to pu- are, are pure theoretical construct. Mm-hmm. Right. They are not in the experiment. They are not manipula- mm-hmm. manipulated by right, the Right, exactly. Yes. The model, the algorithm tells you, okay, thi- in this trial, subject should have set a new mm-hmm. hypothetical strategy. Right, exactly. And the model behaves in this way around this event. Mm-hmm. So the way we check is how subject performs in the way the model mm-hmm. performs around this predicted trial. Right. Mm-hmm. And we found that it was reasonably well mm-hmm. uh, the case. Right. But now you also and this is a way, I think this is a very good test about the model. The model predicts that in this event, this, should, this is what should happen, mm-hmm. and you observe it. And, uh, right. But now, mm-hmm. what you found is that also these, these hypothetical, or no, the theoretical constructs that you use now to interpret the performance of the, of the, of the human subjects actually matched again amazingly well on your fMRI signatures. So what were the outstanding, the most salient effects that you, that you found there? Uh, so for me, the, the, the most uh, exciting effect and the most salient is wa- wa- was about a specific type of algorithmic event, mm-hmm. which is confirmation events. What is a confirmation event? A confirmation event is when the model, after creating uh, a new strategy, decides that it continues with it, it confirms mm-hmm. it, it confirms the, the assumption, the hypothesis. And because it confirms, it just means that it proceeds with it in the, and continue to proceed to use it for behaving. Which means that in the behavior, you cannot see this event. Mm-hmm. There is no marker, no signature in the behavior about this event. But of course, if this algorithm is really implemented in the brain, there should be an event in the brain that mm-hmm. t- uh, m- that s- that mark this time this trial when this strategy is confirmed, mm-hmm. and we found actually uh, a correlate of this event of this algorithmic event in the ventral striatum, so mm-hmm. in the region that is really known to process uh, rewards. Mm-hmm. So we have. Uh, and I think this is what could be nice with fMRI, that you, you have a purely internal neuronal event that is predicted by the model, at least the, the, the time uh, it should happen, and uh, that, you can, uh, that you cannot see in the behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then your interpretation would be that this confirmation event triggers a ventral striatum to modulate let's say, neuromodulatory signals to, to modulate uh, to memory. Cortical, to cortical areas that memorize the internal Right, exactly. Internal so this is your model. interpretation of yeah. the signal. Mm. Right, exactly. So basically, we know because I, uh, this, uh, so the, the reliability of strategy are monitored 
within the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. and we know that this region projects to the ventral striatum. Right, exactly. So what is a confirmation event? It is when the probe actor, the hypothesis, mm -hmm. uh, pass from an uh, unreliable to a reliable state. Mm -hmm. So it's a transition. Right, when exactly. there's a transition from unreliability to reliability. Mm -hmm. And probably my interpretation is that this transition is conveyed to the ventral striatum, mm -hmm. And the ventral system use it as, or transform it as a reinforce, mm -hmm. as a reinforcer signals that is dispatched to uh, regions that memorize the strategy. Right. But this also means that uh, the subject is performing the task. So it just tries out something. Now it's a hypothesis. There's no idea about the outcome. Uh, the action is successful. So there's positive reinforcement. Now we have an unexpected reward. So there we go with with a reward signal. Is that roughly a correct interpretation as well? Uh, no, because we can, sh we can show that uh, this effect of confirmation is, goes in addition to the effect of having a positive or negative okay. reward. Mm -hmm. okay. So it's so an additional effect. Okay. It's, uh, With their own sources, you're saying. So mm -hmm. there would be like an, an externally triggered event, which is whatever happens in the task, and there's an internally more cognitively dependent effect. Yes. So converge. basically there is an external signal, the external reward, mm -hmm. that is of course processed in the ventral striatum as positive, negative, expected or not expected. And there is this internally driven uh, right, exactly. uh, feedback. Mm -hmm. It's an internal feedback. Yeah. It's a cognitive feedback right. about exactly. the, of, of from the monitoring system, which is the medial, um, the anterior prefrontal regions, that uh, provides this uh, internal feedback, this cognitive feedback. Mm -hmm. I understand. But now, in some sense, to sort of close a little bit this part of the discussion, um, y I could argue that, well, y your tasks are, are cognitively encapsulated. That means... In some sense, you focus very much on this frontal area, almost in disconnection from everything else, right? So that means, in some sense, you, you are forced to think about hypothesis development and hypothesis testing as a pure internal cognitive act. But that's why I emphasized earlier this operational aspect. If I'm a behaving agent, this is how we are modeling problem solving and so on, actually, I'm also testing hypotheses out in the world, And that in itself would allow me to build new policies from long-term memory, not by internal recombination, but by playing it out in the real world and building new memories following the standard procedures of memory. So without having to assume an additional you, layer... You, you mean a, in a totally unsupervised way? Well, without having to rely on internal cognitive <laughs> hypothesis generation. I could just say, look... I'm here in the world, I'm, I want to explore stuff, so I'm going to allow different policies to play out or dominate my actions in, uh, in some sequence. So now, as an end result, I have constructed a new policy. I've built a recombination, a recombinant of all of them, which you can now... Yeah, you mean, uh, for example, if you behave randomly, you, you, uh, you build a new... Uh, well, that would be a very extreme way to yeah, do it. Yeah, it's extreme, yeah. But yes. Um... What I I think you 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 always monitor your own behavior. The monitoring system that monitors uh, your behavior is always active. Mm -hmm. because it seems to be very important. Mm 
uh, for the organism. Mm -hmm. So I think this system is always there. The question is whether you monitor alternative strategy all the time. Mm -hmm. And explicitly, right? Explicitly, and explicitly, yeah. yeah. Uh, explicitly is a good question. It's not sure that it's explicit for uh, <laughs> for the subject. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's an interesting question because uh, as uh, we found we found that actually this you have you are able to monitor two three alternative strategies in addition to your uh, strategies you are using to mm -hmm. act. I'm not sure that subjects are aware about or explicitly aware about having these three strategies uh, in mind. Mm -hmm. um, it's a good question. Mm. I have no answer about so, that. But, but, but still, it's, uh, let us say that ex explicit, it's... Uh, and I think, right, you are, we, we are not always monitoring alternative mm. strategy. Uh, right. uh, but that might because it's probably quite thoughtful and... Uh, exactly right. Right, so you could also, uh, this might be a method of last resort because you also could have, let's say, a more situated form of monitoring where you just say, look, uh, let's take the football example. You could say, okay, I tried this in the past, it, it worked half, so I use only part of this policy and I just try it out. Okay, you just try it out in the world and now the world responds to whatever you did. So I have been monitoring if you want, but in a situated fashion. By performing an experiment, effectively. I think what you are describing here is just uh, a learning. It's just learning. It's mm -hmm. just monitoring. Mm -hmm. You know? Uh, but it could give rise. Uh, but the funny thing is it can solve a problem you were solving with your monitoring. Because I can now have invented a new policy, building on known policies, but have not relied on a complex internal memory-heavy process. I just played it out in, in the real world, and indeed I learned and picked it up. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I think learning is uh, could be quite sophisticated. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, it's an embedded system that can be uh, quite sophisticated. Mm. Uh, so as an alternative interpretation, you would you would leave that option no, I open? No, I think this is two uh, complementary systems. Mm -hmm. uh, but to explain the behavior of your subjects? No, you cannot... Uh, I mean, uh, we have evidence in our experiment that what we cannot... Uh, we cannot explain... Uh, our subject behavior using just, uh, uh, I mean, eliminating a monitoring system. Okay. So are you, would you claim that all action depends on monitoring and rules? I think you, uh, all your behavior is continuously uh, monitored by your medial prefrontal system. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's true not only in humans but in many animals and it's the first level of development is to st is to have this system mm -hmm. this monitoring system you monitor your behavior so I mean the archaic system is let us say a system that just continuously adjusts like reference point learning to uh, external contingency then the step 
uh, a bit more evolved than the, the, this very first step is you have you monitor your behavior. Mm -hmm. And then the second step is you start to be able to monitor alternative mm -hmm. okay. at the same time. So, um, so now to, to, to finish up our, our conversation, um, so you have, you have really now this very deep understanding of, of decision-making in the mm. frontal lobes, mm. and this is based on a long track record of outstanding work, mm. both experimental and theoretical, which I think mm. makes it really so, so unique. Mm. So if we would like to follow in that tradition, what would be uh, Etienne's law that we should follow? What's Etienne's law to study the brain? Uh, 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 my view is that to do both experiments and uh, modeling mm -hmm. works, to try mm -hmm. to have in the same uh, restricted team the two competencies mm -hmm. because uh, experiments are very important because you can develop very nice model and very sophisticated, very beautiful model, uh, mathematically beautiful model, and they are very satisfactory uh, for our intellect, but actually they don't explain what humans do. Mm -hmm. So doing experiments force you to move forward and not to stay in a comfortable way, uh, in a comfortable way with very nice, beautiful model, mm -hmm. you know? Right. And uh, nature is not always uh, perfect. So this model, I mean, you need to develop models that are maybe less beautiful, but uh, they are more efficient, mm -hmm. more pragmatic. Right. <laughs> okay. So and the other thing is, so five years from now, I'm going to go visit you in Paris. And I'm going to confront you with a, with a prediction you're going to make today. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you, look, did this really work out? So what's this one prediction you are most passionate about today? Which is the one prediction you would make? Okay. Um, I, I would try to think about a prediction that that is testable. I have one prediction that, uh, a strong prediction from our data, is that human cannot monitor more than three uh, strategies at the same time, three, mm -hmm. four strategies. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, I, I, I am interested about this prediction mm -hmm. because uh, this is what we found mm -hmm. in our experiment, but maybe in other experiments it would, could be different. So I would like to know whether this capacity limit we uh, mm -hmm. found in our experiment is quite general, it's a true, or whether it's just uh, an anecdotal finding. And uh, I think, yeah, okay, okay. this is it's quite simple and I think it's testable. Wonderful. <laughs> so, Etienne Coslin, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you for your question. I really enjoy uh, them and enjoy discussing with you. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomedics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.